for The Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu. I'm not essentially Asian, but I've been racialized as an Asian person. Just that minimal mention of that political economic framing helps me remember that I live in a world where my identity is bracketed as a racial category. But that can't possibly be all I am, and it can't possibly explain everything that needs to be explained. Rather than thinking of race as basic, we want to ask the question, when and where and how did race come to capture our imaginations such that we just now assume it as basic. And so the story at the end of the day about racial capitalism, about failed political economies, is theologically a story about how God will not leave us doomed to these things. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. Matt Crossman with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. And I'm Evan Rosa. Matt, it's good to be with you. Good to be with you. So you're bringing to the show this conversation you had recently with Jonathan Tran, theologian at Baylor University, and about his book, Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism. I mean, the book title alone, it's just an intriguing and fascinating project. Holy cow. Wide ranging. That guy has a lot to say. What did you guys talk about? One of the most interesting things is that we talked about race, not from where we often start in America in terms of race, which is white and black. And obviously there's good reasons that we start with white and black when we think about race in America, given the history of slavery in this country. Yeah, sure. We talked about race from the point of view and the experience of Asian Americans. It's interesting, like we, we see race differently. And his argument is we maybe see some things that we otherwise miss when we think about race, when we take the experience of Asian Americans seriously. Yeah. It's interesting that he's coming from a sort of philosophical, theological background and bringing this project where he's, he's using a little bit of, of something that is like a touchy word, Marxism. Dude, black Marxism to understand Asian American experience. One of the big insights for me coming out of this conversation was the order between economic realities and racialization. So yeah. what, what do we mean by that? Right. So he, he sort of convinced me we might maybe we come in with a sort of common sense that first comes a sort of racial ideology. You think, well, this category of people are like less than human. And then secondarily, you think because of that, we can I can exploit them. We can have systems of oppression that somehow sit somehow okay with the people who are doing that exploitation. He thinks it runs the other way around. He thinks first what comes is a sort of economic motivation to exploit a group of people. And then coming back at the end is a sort of a, a racial rationalization. I think it's like an idea that's really going to, has stuck with me and is going to continue to stick with me from this conversation. Yeah, that's really interesting. The other thing is crazy about this conversation is we're talking about Marxism. We're talking about sort of the economic components of racial ideology and the history of race in the United States. But then we also end up talking about communities that are like bearing witness to Jesus in really interesting ways. And the book has a fair bit about a predominantly Asian American church in San Francisco that is, has three main three main things that they have. They've got their church, but they also have a school, maybe not so surprising, and they have a software company. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they thought that somehow 
But I think in, in one part, it's this sort of holism of thinking about how big these systems are. And if you want to make a sort of intervention and bear witness to ways of living otherwise, it's going to take more than you know, just a, a place of worship on a Sunday morning. There's this more holistic sort of bearing witness to other ways of, of being that aren't oriented around just economic interests and power and money, but are bearing witness to other ways of, of belonging to one another, other ways of being in relationship and of sort of structuring whole communities. And that means that you need, yeah, not just, not just a church, but maybe also a place of education and maybe even a place that's, that's making some money, that's participating in the market, but not just for profit motive, but for the, the benefit of the community where they are. And that, that was a really powerful just, juxtaposition that they've got this, this, this single conversation and this single author, this single person, and Jonathan, who's thinking both, I mean, it's like world-class history of race and how do we think best about race, but also just some really practical hope from like a local church community that, that he, he thinks sparks something in our imagination of what it would be to like bear witness to the way of Jesus in the midst of the world and the country that we live in. I think in light of that primary argument of the book, that the economics come before, you might say, the anthropology, belonging to one another uh, is a really provocative concept. Because that means your economy is going to be a gift economy rather than a profit maximization <laughs> economy. That's right. Yeah. Matt, thanks for bringing this conversation to For the Life of the World. Yeah, excited for folks to hear this. So thanks for listening today, everyone. In this episode on Jonathan Tran's book, Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism, Matt and Jonathan discuss Jonathan's experience growing up as a war refugee in Southern California. They discuss where racialized thinking really comes from, like how to understand its history and its impact today. They discuss Christian moral psychology, meritocracy and capitalism, and they discuss a unique Christian community, Redeemer Community Church in San Francisco, which offers this experiment in bearing witness to the economic and racial realities of life today, but through a theological framing of the gospel. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy. Jonathan, thanks so much for being here today. It's a great honor to be with you all. I love the podcast and it's a great thing to be with you. I wonder if we could just start with, why'd you write the book? Yeah, the origins of the book, I think, are as important as the book itself in my mind. I say a little bit about this in the beginning of the book, but I grew up, you know, racial minority, war refugee in America at a time when racism was not only accepted, it was expected to go out in the street and you would be expecting for someone to yell at the car window or to be bullied on your elementary school campus and this kind of thing. And so when I got to university, I was pretty surprised to find out that the racism that I had experienced, which was quite consistent and at times quite severe, didn't quite count, but it did matter a great deal to me. So I became a Christian at about age 20 during my university years. And I was really hungry for literature conversations about all that I had experienced and certainly what I knew, the little I knew about kind of the broader realities of race in America. I think I started my academic career in graduate school. And once I started on the faculty, I think I was, I believed in the kinds of left of center discourse on race and anti-racism. I think at some point mid-career, I had a couple of experiences 
my own and then those I experienced vicariously through colleagues, where I began to question whether the conversation we're having in academia quite served the purposes of uh, anti-racism. And so this required me to step back and ask about racism generally. What is it? What do we mean by it? What does it mean to be anti-racist? And then I began to wonder whether in some ways we had thought about the question somewhat in a limited way, at some point even backwards. And so this is when I began to enter a conversation with a critical discourse that isn't really read very much in theology, uh, though it is quite well read in political theory and sociology and other proximate fields. And this is the field of Black radical thought that, that thinks about things like racism, chattel slavery, et cetera, et cetera, within the larger categories of political economy which is to say that to think about race, you need to think about political economy and to think about political economy, you need to think about race. It was that kind of mutual overlap of those kinds of conversations, the concepts, categories, discourses that really began to push the ways I had thought about it. And then by extension, the ways I had been thought about it, taught to be to think about it in theology more broadly. And so I wrote the book, being informed, being tutored by those discourses, but always trying to make sense of my own experience. Hmm. I wonder if we could, you, you just mentioned something really intriguing that we maybe think about racism backwards. If I, if I got it right, maybe from, from the book, something like we, maybe we think racism because we have, because we believe racist ideas, we exploit people, well, people that we don't count or don't count as human or count as less than human. We exploit them economically because we already ideologically believe something racially about them. You say it works the other way around. Could you could you explain explain that? Yeah, so I think part of the legacy, the long legacy of thinking about race as much as we in America have, right? And this is over the course of hundreds of years. I think we tend to think of race as a kind of self-interpreting, self-defining category that it is a quality or category of me as a person or you as a person that is basic, even essential. So at the end of the day, what I am is I'm Asian and what you are is you're white. And if you, if someone asks you, well, what do you mean by that? You would have a kind of quizzical look. You would think, well, it's just obvious what that means. Once you have something like that on board, then the key question about, say, you and me as an Asian man and a white man is about the racial relationships we have with one another. And the relationship can go any number of ways you can imagine. One, you could be racist toward Asian people. I might be fawning over white people. And so the idea is there's these basic categories or qualities of us. And then the question of racial relationships is how we relate to each other well or not well and so on and so forth. Within that picture, then anti-racism would seek to correct or reverse the ways they don't go well, right? Both in our interpersonal relationship, Jonathan and Matt, as well as over the whole course of American history, white people, Asian people. Whereas what I began to realize is that we need to ask, how did race come onto the scene at all? So if we want to say, well, race is a basic category, it's a category of a world we inhabit. So then we need to ask questions about how race came to play the role it did. And so when I say 
it's somewhat backwards, we need to reverse the story. Rather than thinking race as basic, we want to ask the question, when and where and how did race come to capture our imaginations such that we just now assume it as basic? And that's really the harder, a very hard set of questions because it really requires us to step into, say, the conceptual DNA of, of our culture. And to ask those questions is to ask some fundamental questions about the ways that we organize ourselves as a society, uh, the way certain things persist and continue on, the ways that they affect us at every level, uh, interpersonal, institutional, psychological, certainly spiritual. And so that's what I mean by kind of stepping back. And one of the things that's interesting is that there's a whole history, a kind of whole intellectual history that thinks what I just said to be obvious, right? So there's a whole host of the Black radical tradition that's going to say something like, well, obviously it's not us. It doesn't have anything to do with us as Black people. It's the world that created us as Black people. And we're going to ask some critical questions about what that, how that world is put together. And so for these folks, these things were just obvious. This is a discourse that's 150 years old, the Black radical tradition. Uh, it's just not one that we've been very familiar with at times, partly because of our capture within racial categories. So you, you say this has to do with political economy. What, what do you mean by political economy? And, and how, how, does, how, does, how does thinking in terms of political economy help us understand the sort of origins of race and, and where these categories have come from? Yeah, it's a great question. One of the things I always try to say to people is to remember that both terms in the description matter. So I'm not simply, I'm not talking about simply an economic analysis. I'm not saying that race is, say, simply a function of the market or of supply and demand. That economy, any serious consideration of economy is a consideration of the political reality that makes that economy move forward, that makes it, effectuates its possibilities institutionalize it, so on and so forth. So, so political economy is in some sense one of the widest ways we can imagine how a society operates. Not simply but markets, but, but certainly including markets, not simply capital, but certainly including capital. But the interrelationship between how we organize ourselves as a society and the ways that we value and devalue human beings or creatures within that world. I try to say that political economy has its widest valence theologically, that creation is understood in terms of political economy. So this just goes back to some kind of basic kind of high medieval concepts about God's essence and existence being that which necessarily has to overlap. Whereas humans, right, we, our essence is to exist contingently. We exist by the gratuity, which is an economic term it's something about grace. So we exist as gift, again, a political economic term. So that means the structure of creation is in a sense hardwired as gift. And that means a certain type of relationship between creatures and creator, and certainly between creatures. And so, and when we think about say classical theological conceptions of sin, then again, these are political economic terms and categories, right? And so we think about it as the privation of the good, about acting in a predatory way towards a good that is given corporately and collectively from God to creatures and some privatizing it, some rendering it property 
enclosure mentalities, colonial mentalities, settlement mentalities. So those all map, those contemporary notions map quite well onto kind of basic theological claims. Maybe the best way to kind of lay this out is to remind ourselves that one of the first ways we talked about the gospel in the early church was as the divine economy, an economy of gratuity and grace over and against the world's privation and predation. And so it's taking those kinds of basic theological categories, then mapping them onto radical traditions of thought over the last couple hundred years that then tries to think about these things in continuity. So am I, am I right to hear in your use of the word economy, I can't help but think we think a lot in the Center for Faith and Culture about home and economy, right? In the, in the Greek is that the, the law of the home, the management, the sort of structuring, the ordering of a home, as you say, of, of God with the creature and creatures with one another. Is, 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 is that the kind of holistic way that you're thinking about this? Is this part of the, the home of God is a sort of, is a gift economy that, or the, hmm, the home of God is, is structured is, by gift in that sort of way? Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful way to put it for sure. I mean, one of the ways this is most powerfully articulated recently was by in the encyclical by Pope Francis, our common home. And the idea is our common home is a space separate from God that somehow needs to be kind of pushed back and to relate to God. Our common home, and this goes back to the essence and existence thing, it participates in the Trinitarian life of God, which is a God of abundant, not simply abundance, but excessive abundance. And so the idea of our, as Pope Francis said, our interconnections with one another, right, relate to our interconnections with the divine life. And so... It's a way of trying to reimagine how we imagine the world we inhabit, not as one to be divvied up in terms of property and closure that then leads to practices like expropriation, appropriation, exploitation, but rather we exist in a massively mutually invested economy uh, where we are politically with one another and there's there's a gift structure to this thing. And so when you think about political economy within that wide frame, then I think it's quite easy then to try to think that our lives issue out of that, um, especially our political lives with one another. And so going back to your initial question, to think about race in terms of political economy is to ask, what is the material political economy out of which the concept and category of race began? And I mean, anyone that knows a little bit about American history knows that race was utilized in Europe and America to create a kind of ideological justification for relationships of property and labor. And so you see this early in the English relationship to the Irish, the European relationship to the South and Eastern Europeans. Uh, Even the very basis of the word Slav or Slavic is where we get the word, of course, slave. And these were ways of saying, hey, uh, we can do this to you. We can exploit you. We can expropriate labor from you uh, in these ways that are not only morally problematic, but say, obviously morally problematic. We could justify them by slapping on top of those arrangements a category that seems to naturalize it to essentialize it, to legitimate it, to license it. And so it's a way of saying, well, it's because you're white that you are indentured, but not permanent labor. And because you're black, 
and it's something essential and necessary and natural to you, you are permanently enslaved labor. And these are categories of thought that were played all over the place, certainly in the European context, certainly in the Americas. Certainly that was part of the thinking in relationship to Asian labor, which was a kind of exploited migrant class of labor that we came to know as the cool. Uh, All over the place, right, you see these categories of race that then are read, articulated in continuity with these labor practices. One of the extraordinary things, one of the extraordinary limits or gaps of contemporary anti-racism then is how often we talk about race relations outside of property and labor relations, which is just absurd given not simply the origins, but the ongoing practices of how we construe our world. So I want to make sure I'm getting getting this right and that we're getting this right as we're listening to you here. That the thought is that first comes the economic exploitation, the privatization of the good gifts of God given, given to the world. Some group of people says, uh, we, we found an opportunity to, to privatize that, to hold, hold more of that, to hoard this good in some sort of way. Um, but it's so, in some cases, it's so obviously like immoral and wrong <laughs> that, that even, even the process of doing, of, of doing this grasping, this hoarding, that self-same group of people says, oh, I, I need some sort of like justification for this, some rationalization for what I've just done. And race gets invented, race, like ways of, of, of categorizing people and excluding them from sort of the sphere of human concern is, well, you say at some point, it seems to be the inevitable sort of outcome of sort of a capitalist system. You say this is not just how it happened to go, but how it always has has gone. You say capitalism is sort of coextensive with racialization. Um, that's a pretty, that's a pretty strong, strong claim. Um, so first of all, have I got, have I, have I told the story somewhat right? I'm trying to make sure I'm understanding here. And then if you could speak a little bit to that, is it, is it really so bad? Capitalism is just necessarily <laughs> like entangled with, with, with racism in, in, in these ways. Yeah, that's a great, enormous question. And a question if, if the book is to be taken seriously, that is one of the big questions coming out of it, which is what kind of human futures can we imagine within a world that is clearly captive to capital? So let me, let me give you the Marxist version of the answer, then the theological, and then come back to your really pertinent question here. So I, I, mean, I think I kind of most folks know kind of just with the minimal working knowledge of Marxism, Marxism is the view that capitalists, those who are owners, those who are bosses, right, those who exploit other people, need ideological ways of thinking about what they're doing. And they certainly need ideological ways to explain to others what they're doing, which isn't to say that those who are being exploited believe this. I think those who are being exploited read the nonsense for what it is, read the ruse of power for what it is. But the bosses have to say this out loud. They have to say it for all kinds of reasons. Some, maybe they need to justify it to government overseers. Uh, maybe they go to church and they need to morally feel better. Uh, but they come up with an ideological stratum of thought, a kind of super cultural notion of how the world works that then justifies what they're doing, right? And so just think about a kind of how our, any of us normally live. So I'm in my city of Waco and I go to certain neighborhoods and it's pretty clear 
that there are ample resources. The schools are really well-funded. The cars are in good working order. Everyone has access, easy access to healthcare and really good healthcare. Employment is readily available. And you look around, it happens to map on to a certain racial demographic. They're all white. And you start thinking to yourself, there's a natural relationship between these two. Just like if I go to East Waco, which is a historically black part of my city, and you see the opposite. There's no financial infrastructure. There's no easy access to health care. The schools are in disrepair or constantly fighting the school district for resources. And everyone happens to be black or brown. Rather than asking a question, how in the world have we allowed ourselves to organize our world in such incredibly exploitative, dominant, uh, ridiculously immoral ways? We say something like, well, now that I think about it, the problem is with them. It's, it's their being black or brown. It's something essential or natural to them. As monstrous as a mode of thinking that is, in some ways, it's a lot easier than trying to ask this question, how do we need to reorganize, which is going to force us to ask some very difficult questions, not simply about redistribution, but how a lot of us are benefactors to that system. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the, the Marxist story. I think that is a really important story. And what Marxism, specifically Black Marxism, helped uh, a prior Marxism come to realize was that that the ideological form that takes racial form, right? Not just simply an ideological justification, but the fact that it eventually took racial form was an inevitable part of the ideological rationale because what we're talking about is the exploitation at a bodily level. And so eventually the justification would have to be not simply say religious uh, justification, moral justification. It would have to lay blame on a person's body because these were exploitations of bodies, whether they be human bodies, animal bodies, bodies of land and space, right? They, that it had to take on a religious, a, a kind of bodily cast of mind. And so race became inevitable. Uh, that's why black Marxism is a hugely important corrective on white Marxism, which tend to just think, well, we're just going to come up with any kind of ideological explanation. Well, it's not just any kind. It's eventually, right, if political economy names what we think it names, then it's going to run into race. It's going to run into gender. Those are just the natures of the modes of exploitation. Let me then offer what I think is a, a theological overlap here, right? So I'm, as I mentioned, I wasn't raised religious. I wasn't raised Christian. But one of the things I really philosophically appreciated about Christianity when I finally kind of came across it in a serious way is that it has such an extraordinarily rich moral psychology it has such a sophisticated view of humans, right? It doesn't divide the world neatly between good people and evil people. It pretty clearly understands evil runs down, as, as we say, down every human heart. But it also makes the claim that that evil doesn't have the first or last word. That there's an inclination towards us, towards goodness, truth, and beauty, even in the severe mooring of those transcendentals. And so... Think about, that's a, it's a pretty amazing set of claims. One, that evil, good and evil isn't as easily demarcated as we tend to think. And that humans, even in the face of extraordinary forms and practices of evil, that there's something about us that remains type, uh, an inclination towards goodness, truth, and beauty. Uh, and that the human life is this drama 
involved in these various polarities and all the forms of goodness, truth, and beauty that we're capable of and capable of marring. I think that maps quite well that moral sophistication, that moral psychology. And as we know, we have all kinds of notions of willing and bondage and sin and freedom and redemption. All those live theological categories map on quite well to the the picture that Marx and other radical thinkers gave us about how we tend to do these things. And so my inclination to justify the world of Waco is all built into these Marxist notions of ideology and racial stratification, but it also maps quite well onto this picture that we get from scripture and the tradition that humans are not simply idolaters, but we're incredibly clever, subtle idolaters. And so our exploitations are ones that we participate in and benefit from are built in in these extraordinarily subtle, sophisticated ways That's part of the problem, right, with, say, the anti-racism. Anti-racism has such a tendency, and maybe it's a necessary tendency in a political moment that requires a kind of clear voice, full-throated dismissal of racist realities. But that lends too much to a view that, oh, the, the racists, the evil people, the bad hats, they're over there. And the good people, oh, we're over here, and just conveniently, I'm on the right side of it. Whereas the accounts of racism and sin that we get from scripture and say the black Marxists, it's a bit more complicated and very likely you tend to think a certain kind of thing because you're positioned in a world in a certain kind of way. Mm. That's really helpful. I want to ask you a little bit more about this distinction you just made. And and you began with it even in your account of like why you wrote the book, this sort of love-hate relationship with anti-racism and, and or, or, or feeling like deep, deeply committed and also deeply ambivalent about it. So you, you in the book, you lay out a few different categories. One is, you talk about post-racialism on the one hand, identitarianism on another hand, which I think you align with, with as the sort of dominant orthodoxy and anti-racism. And then uh, at least at one point in the book, you, you talk about deracialization as, as a sort of a third option or a third goal. Could you walk us through each of those, <laughs> each, each of those terms and, and what you mean, what you think is at stake there? So there was in American culture, probably over the last two decades, a kind of emerging hope for a post-racial America. And it, it certainly kind of met its high watermark with the election of Barack Obama. The idea that we used to be a racial and their, you know, and racist society, and the fact that we could elevate a black man to the highest office in the country suggested that we are past that. So so one form of post-racialism is a kind of aspiration that insofar as racialization and racism are bad things that we've kind of come to the other side of that. And I think anyone that has their eyes half wide open realizes that that just empirically is absurd, that we live in a society that's still overridden by racialization and certainly racism. Another version of this that's a little bit more complicated is a view that says, well, insofar as race is a function of political economy, say a view like mine, that it's there simply to exploit, is there any use of race any longer as a concept? Or are we in a position to, say, reverse engineer bad race categories for better race categories? So let's say a race category that we're used to is using race to denigrate African-Americans. And so maybe someone says, well, can we reverse engineer that to push out accounts of, say, Black dignity, Black power, 
black politics? And, and this is a really difficult and interesting and important question. One of the most cu- critical questions going forward, which is as a society, we want to ask ourselves, what role will race play? So if, if it's not possible to say right now that we're a post-racial society, that race still plays a determinative role in, say, housing, education, healthcare, does that mean we kind of fully inhabit race and say we go with it and just try to reverse course? What I'm suggesting is that the political economy way of the framework helps us to hold our race categories in a certain kind of way. On the one hand, we, we don't delude ourselves by thinking we're in a post-racial society, but neither does it mean we double down on race. So we could say, well, we lived in a society where things were divvied up, stratified racially, and now let's just kind of reverse engineer that, keep the race categories and just flip the, sto- flip the script on things. The problem with that, of course, the benefit to that is it kind of gives us a kind of roadmap on how to do things. We just go backwards in a sense. The problem with that is, of course, it just carries the essential racial categories forward and it continues to reduce us to racial people. And it tends, it tends to continue to give race explanatory power. Yeah. Why is Matt like that? Oh, because he's white, because of whiteness. Why is Jonathan like that? Because he's Asian. And the problem with that is that we're so used to that, the very suggestion of it tends to continue to give it credence and power and and longevity. So what I'm suggesting is just merely keeping in mind that I'm not essentially Asian, but I've been racialized as an Asian person. Just that minimal mention of that political economic framing helps me remember that I live in a world where my identity is bracketed as a racial category. But that can't possibly be all I am. And it can't possibly explain everything that needs to be explained. There's too much going on in our anti-racist commitments that tends to just reverse engineer and re-essentialize people. And that's why I find categories of things like whiteness helpful as they are unhelpful, right? They, they name the realities of white supremacy, white privilege, white power, our history, our present. But we can tend to use them in ways that just simply reestablish race over and over again. Maybe we think it's reverse engineered, what was put in scripture, what was meant for evil, we've created, we've redone for good. But I think we've been at this for a good number of decades and we just tend to reestablish keep on re-essentializing. It's helpful. There's a particular way that, of course, you're giving an account of this as someone who has been racialized as Asian American, not white, not black, and trying to give an account. It seems to me in part what's happening in the book is that being outside the white black dichotomy and being constantly through processes of racialization, trying to be sort of like sucked into somehow that, that, that dichotomy You've got a particular sort of perspective on and you're asking particular questions. I I just wonder if you could speak to us a little bit about like how the experience of Chinese Americans who become Asian Americans, Vietnamese Americans who become Asian Americans, my wife's Korean American who uh, becomes Asian, her parents became Asian American when coming to this country. How how do the experiences of these communities give us particular sort of insight and perspective on, on the racialization process as it's happened and continues to unfold in the United States? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that I had grown up with a fair amount of racism. America, when I came to America in the 1970s, the U.S. had kind of 
litigated three very costly wars, prosecuted three very costly wars against Asian peoples, the Japanese, the Koreans, and the Vietnamese. And so when I came here, I think people just had been schooled into thinking me me as perilous, as dangerous, as an outsider, someone who didn't belong, who someone who was not simply not American, but the antithesis to America. And so I, I got it just like you would guess, a world in which anti-Asian racism was expected and accepted. And so it was really surprising to me to get to university and say, oh, that experience really doesn't count. And that didn't, that notion didn't diminish as I went along. I came to see how much I didn't count, uh, that I could be in a room full of administrators who are talking about diversity and they did not mean me, even though my kids are literally the only Asian kids at their schools. And so, and this had everything to do with really important metrics. Asian Americans are not simply the most economically successful, but educationally. And those, of course, are connected realities. So then it kind of comes back to me when we talk about diversity as a university, when they think about my kids at their schools, whether they quote, unquote, count. And so it was kind of like that mention I made earlier about this kind of mid-career realization. Hey, there's something off about the way we're talking about this. And this experience of mine was certainly not just me or my kids. It was the kind of regular experience of Asian Americans in higher uh, in higher ed, in corporate America, in classrooms across the country. So how do I take the painful experience of a double marginalization, marginalized first by racism and then marginalized by anti-racism, and turn that into a kind of perspectival or conceptual advantage? That is, what could we see about the conversation about race and racism from the margins. Uh, and that's not to dismiss or minimize the very central conversation about, say, white and black in America, right? I mean, the soil of this country is seeped in the blood of indigenous folks, of black folks, of people who have settled here long before we did. And so those are not unimportant questions. So I wanted to continue to center those conversations, imagine them at the center, but then see them from the perspective of the margins. And this could be, in my case, as an Asian, Asian American, but certainly you can make the same kind of argument for Latino, Hispanic communities, right? Same kind of, how is it that we are the fastest growing population in this country and yet we just never, never seem to register as a significant source of the conversation or a significant part of the conversation? So the book really tries to conceptually imagine the conversation and ask, how do we make sense of this, right? What is the story that informs our current, right? It's, it's an idea of kind of thinking our way out of the present or in Foucault's language, thinking about the history of the present. How did we get here? And so thinking about Asian Americans, I thought of as kind of conceptual miners, canaries, the canary in the mine on the conversation. And what I want to say something like this, that where we, how we fare in the conversation tells us a lot more about the conversation than we tend to think. And it was really, that was the conceptual perspective or vantage into understanding the political economic framework of race in America. And then I began to look at the relationship between, say, migrant Asian peoples and then white folks, migrant Asian people in the Caribbean, in labor categories and property categories, and specifically Asian, the Asian presence in the South, a specific, specifically after the Reconstruction period. And 
this kind of conceptual edge with this advantage is what allowed me to begin to peel back the layers of what seemed to be a primarily not simply race discourse, but a white-black race discourse. And yet here these people are, and they've been there for 100 years. So how do we make sense of that? The one thing, one of the implications I draw from this is that so Asian-American scholars, Asian-Americanists, often will say something like, why, why are we still on the conceptual margins? Why, why not in our fights for solidarity in the academy and in political movements? How, why have we not still gotten the attention? And my answer is because we're talking about race. Race isn't accidentally a binary category. Race is an either-or category. Go back to the political economy. It's, right, race is not about diversity. It's about diversification. It's not about, right, trying to have as much different types of multicultural aspects on the table. It's about stratification. It's necessarily binary in thinking. And so as long as we subscribe to race as a category, we will have the binary. What we want to think about is if we don't want the binary, how do we begin to think beyond race? Yeah. So, so race ranking isn't, isn't a, an accident. It's not accidental that race ranking ends up being, you, you talk at several points about sort of race, the, the sort of ge- gravitational pull of race ranking is like, how do we end up like, here we are sucked into like a conversation about race ranking again. Um, that's not by accident. That's, that's like a, a feature of race and what it's doing for the political economy. That's right. So race, uh, race ranking is internal to race. Uh, oppression Olympics is internal to race. Uh, deciding which minority peoples count is internal to race. This is what race thinking is. It's it's the first capitalist who said we need to differentiate and stratify this society. What category is most available to do that kind of work? And we still inhabit that world, even in our anti-racist modalities and commitments. As we're talking about this, I, I can't help but think about um, meritocracy. Um, in my every fall in my classroom, my uh, philosophy of education class, we end up spending a lot of time with first year Yale students thinking about education, which for them, most recent experience they've had with education was admissions, which gets them thinking constantly about meritocracy. And the darkest thing that we read every fall as I read a piece, we read a piece together that suggests essentially the economy needs a stratified labor market. And we have an ideological commitment as modern Westerners to the thought that all human beings are fundamentally equal. And so we have an economic need that our ideology can't provide. And it strikes me that in just the kinds of, it fits to the kinds of stories you're telling. And so we invent this thing called merit that, that helps us hold both to our ideological commitments of Tarianism and our economic need for stratification. And then, and then of course, with a whole bunch of, of, of hand-waving, which, which largely looks like meritocracy is always in scare quotes, we, we call merit what is actually, in many cases, just the, the, the consequence of histories of, of oppression that you've been describing for us. And, and, we, and we call it merit. Am I, am I right to be drawing the kinds of parallels here? I, it makes me, yeah. reading your book, I'm only more concerned now about meritocracy than I was before I, before I read your book. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to your, your question earlier, which I didn't quite get to about what do we do in a world run by capital? So merit is, I say, um, a closer quarters version of the question. And I can imagine in a Yale classroom, just like a Baylor Honors College classroom, there is the 
most suspicion of merit, but the perception of it. I mean, everyone is in that classroom because they've passed certain kinds of merit considerations. One thing we want to think about with merit is why is always the next question the substance of the merit, right? And so so most of us agree that we live in a system that a world where there's ranking and hierarchy. The question is, what is the criteria for the hierarchy or what? how is merit defined? Well, then, of course, then it's not surprising that we define merit in ways that happen to justify our certain position and lot in life. The, the question of capital is such a good question. The, the, I say in the book that the two things people, I really hope people wrestle with as they leave my book is one, what is going to be your earlier question? What is going to be the role of race going forward? So we don't live in a post-racial society, but we do recognize that race is a function of political economies of exploitation and domination. What's going to be the role of race? Are there ways that we can reverse engineer for good? In some ways, we need to remember, of course, the answer is yes, we can. We just do right? My good friend Vincent Moy just wrote a book called Black Dignity. Clearly, it's doing extraordinary work. But can we do that work without continuing to bring on board the problematic categories or the problematic categorizations? The second question is the question you already asked, which is then what is, what is our life going to be like within a political economy that where the primary key, the primary idiom is still exploitation? And so we don't just have a meritocratist world, but a meritocratist world that is part and parcel with forms of exploitation. In other words, the merit benefits certain people. It's not simply the idea of ranking, but the ranking built in to the politics of the thing. Again, the, the mutual importance of both terms, political economy. If I if if our measure or if, if our rubric is defined by the world as we as if we think the world is self-interpreting. Then, then we're going to get the kind of answer economists, often well-meaning good faith economists are always going to give us, which is it's hard to think of an engine that has produced more wealth or more people more broadly than capitalism. And that's hard to argue with. And, and, and you can take this any number of ways and you're going to still come out with what, what broad departments of economics have come out with. Capitalism has lots of problems. There's still nothing better than it. But if the only alternative that we can imagine to our political economy is our own political economy, then, of course, we're always going to come back to it. But that's why the theological political economy of the divine economy, this notion of that the world is, they exist by its nature in charity and grace and gratuity, if that's the counterweight, then we begin to think about things. And, and my hope is that, that we think about God's divine economy and the point of it is to shame us into realizing we just haven't lived up. Well, of course, that's the case. But I think the point of God's life with us isn't simply to shame us, but to inspire us. And the shame arises out of the lack of inspiration, where the inspiration hasn't moved us and motivated us to something else. And so that's why in the second half of the book, in the first half of the book, I try to give an account of racism as racial capitalism. And I try to say, look, the, the the danger here isn't the dudes with the white sheets under their beds, the closeted clan members, that kind of unsophisticated anti-racism is trying to identify and call out and cancel. Rather, if racial capitalism is a much nearer and dearer intimate reality, then it's often going to be the good faith people that are most participant in it, people like me. So I try to give a pretty subtle and sophisticated account of how racism works within the moral psychology of capital that we've been talking about, the moral psychology of sin. 
But the second half of the book, I try to then offer a political economy that's more reflective of what I call in the book and what we've called in the tradition, the divine economy. And that's where I turned to this church community in San Francisco. And when you compare our meritocratic systems, say the, the dreams and ambitions of our Yale undergrads, our Baylor Honor student undergrads, to capitalists, we feel pretty good about each other. We feel pretty good about our systems of merit. Now, if you compare it to what the folks at Redeemer Community Church are doing as Christians, then you start thinking, huh, <laughs> I wonder if there's a different kind of way I can imagine my life. And that's what I try to do in the second yeah. half of the book. Yeah, I wonder if you could tell us a, a little bit. I mean, honestly, for, for listeners, this is this is the thing. I came into this interview apologizing in advance. That the, almost the only thing I'm going to want to talk about is this church. So I've been very disciplined. We're, we're getting towards the end of our time, and now we've gotten to, to, to this church. It's an amazing story. Though. I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit, because it's three institutions, as you describe the deep economy of, of, of this church. There's the church, there's a software company, and there's a local school. And all three of these are sort of intertwined together. How do those three institutions make any sense? Tell us a little bit of, about, about those three and how they, how they work together. It's similar to how I try to say that we, in order to think we in order to know how to think about race, we need to think more broadly of the interconnections between things, right? Say political economies, not only our earthly political economy and the political economy of capitalism and its alternatives, but also the political economy of God. Uh, and so the, the notion of ecology is super important. And I try to think of ecology as a kind of the material interconnection of all things, things broadly construed, including divine things and non-human things. And so I try to offer a picture of San Francisco as this ecology. It's an ecology that's interwoven with human systems, non-human systems, biotic systems, world systems, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's always, that's the beauty of theology is that if metaphysics is traditionally defined as how do things in their broadest sense hang together in their broadest sense, then what Christianity offers is a, is a story that is broad and is metaphysical, as wide and broad as God is wide and broad. So, so then I try to imagine the interrelationships in a networked community within a lived space of humans. And so there's a church in San Francisco called Redeemer Community Church. And it's important to understand the ecology of San Francisco, right? So San Francisco, the Southwest of San Francisco was always understood as the marginal part of the city. It was the kind of place where the resources and the factories were. And incidentally, I don't need, I, I don't have time to get into all of this, but incidentally, it's also where the people of color were always were, right? So the black laborers, eventually the Asian shrimpers, so on and so forth. And to this day, while San Francisco is considered not only a metropole, but maybe the metropole of the future technological world, we think of San Francisco, we think of extreme wealth, high, the highest levels of technology, the high point of culture, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we don't remember that there are parts of San Francisco, like there are parts of any ecology that are marginalized, exploited, and dominated. So I look at a part in the southwest of San Francisco called the Bayview Hunters Point part, which was traditionally called Black San Francisco. And I look at a host of churches, Black churches, Asian churches, and specifically Redeemer, how it's invited into this community by traditional Black churches and pastors to kind of share life. And what happens over about two decades is that these folks come and, and, and most of these folks graduated from Cal, Berkeley, Stanford, schools like UCLA. So they're kind of elite educated Asian Americans. And through 
inner varsity groups like at Stanford or Cal, they realized two things about Jesus and the city. One is that Jesus is on the side of the oppressed, a kind of standard claim of liberation theology. And two, if you want to have more of Jesus, you ought to go where Jesus is with the oppressed. And so none of these folks would say they do this work because they're really good, super righteous, heroic people. They're greedy for God. And God is in these spaces doing beautiful work and has always been doing beautiful work in these parts of the city. And so these folks almost all quit their day jobs in high power computer science, computer engineering firms in Silicon Valley. Uh, and they go and make their life next to neighbors in Black San Francisco. Uh, and one of the things they're always doing there, as any good kind of Christian should be doing, is they're asking questions. What are the needs here? What are the, the pain points? What are the opportunities? What is the way beauty and goodness and truth have made themselves present here? And how can I be a part of that? And one of the quick realizations is the school, I mean, the, the, the communities need schools. And we could wait around and rally local city government to do better and to have more equal educational systems. But that takes, as anyone knows who's done this work, and, and a number of these folks have, it takes decades. All the while, you need education. And so they, but they needed a, a kind of way to distribute or redistribute income. And what the school, what the church had was a bunch of teachers on the one hand. That's why they got the teach school idea. But they also had a bunch of software engineers. So they started a software company called Dayspring Partners. Uh, and the primary thing is they do really great software engineering stuff there. They create apps that a lot of us use, that kind of thing. But they use that work to redistribute money through the local business economy and the local educational economy. And so what they did is they created a school that's largely for free for the kids in these neighborhoods. And they've had a tremendous buy-in, partly because things have become so desperate in one of the most expensive markets in the world, which also happens to overlap with one of the most inequitable education, educational systems in the world, right? The wealthy hoard their resources, make sure their kids are taken care of, uh, and that leaves as an afterthought everybody else. And so they opened a school called Rise Prep, uh, a Rise Academy Preparatory, uh, and it's they are going to open up every grade from K to 12 eventually. Uh, they're in the process of getting a building and all this kind of thing. Uh, and, and it's their way of trying to, again, if you ask these folks why they do it, none of them would say, oh, we're superheroes or we're really extraordinary moral creatures or this kind of advocates or this kind of thing. They would say, we love Jesus and we want to be where Jesus is. And they think that's what Jesus is doing. So it's it's a pretty amazing picture, but the mo maybe the most amazing thing about these folks, and I spent kind of two years kind of doing ethnographic work with them, is just how ordinary they are. And the the picture I want to suggest is that this is as I, one of the lines I use at the end of the book. This is just the church being the church. This is ordinary people living into the extraordinary grace and goodness of God, uh, and these are readily readily available. I want to say that they're more readily available to the extraordinarily readily available capitalist powers of domination. Uh, and if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we can, we can participate in these kinds of things. You say, um, in part in your description, just as you've been saying now, that these folks you say, are their life is marked by joy um, rather than by a sort of um, do-gooders altruism. And you say that that's part of what makes them sort of stand out in San Francisco. Plenty of do-gooding altruists. Yeah. Um, 
But here's a community sort of driven by joy. And you offer a, a reading, which I, I think maybe you heard in or is, is part of the life of the church as well, of uh, the an interpretation of the Gospel of Mark's story of Jesus's encounter with, well, I think I forget in Mark whether he's rich or young or a ruler. I think he's, <laughs> he's just he's just rich and young, I think. But this, of course, is a classic passage in inner varsity circles and has been for decades. Anyway, but it, there's this reading that, that of, of, of going, going towards, because at the end of that passage, Peter gives a sort of altruists, woe is us. We right. left everything to come and follow you, right? And, and which, which gives um, Jesus reason to offer his further teaching, right? That uh, no one who leaves behind these things will not receive back in this life, families, fields, etc., along with persecutions. But and anyway, you, you, you offer what you call the, the joy dispossession ellipse. And that sort of joy, real joy comes through dispossession and real dispossession comes with joy. You say, and I love this line, you said, joy without dispossession is escapist. Dispossession without joy is sadist. I wrote in the margins, this is what I have been looking for <laughs> my entire life, especially since being in an intervarsity study where we read the story of the rich young man. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about the joy dispossession ellipse and why these two things go together. Because probably disposition probably doesn't sound like it should come with joy alongside. Yeah, dis dispossession sounds like dispossession. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's one of the most central theological commitments of the book. So we live in a time, especially in Christian theology and all kind of learned disciplines, where we're really aware and growing aware, growing in awareness, thankfully, of just how destructive we've been, how horrible we've been. And so you have a book where you spent 200 pages talking about how subtle and sophisticated the powers and the harms of sin. then. The inclination is to think, well, we live in a world that is out of our control. It's out, not only out of our control, but it's beyond God's control. And so we start to think, well, the best that we could do is at least try not to participate. And we begin to use what I call resistance language. We need to resist this. Whereas theology is not primarily key to resistance. It's not that resistance isn't part of it, but theology is proclamation. It's saying something like, this is God's. God wins in this story. This is God isn't a subject of the story simply. It's not simply a character of the story. God is the author and conclusion of the story. That means that we are participating in an end that's already been reached, right? And and we could think about this just in the cruciform or the Pascal sense of, of Christ saying it is finished. That there's something that's completed on that Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And Christians participate in that story, that no matter how many pages we can spend, and we can spend an endless number of pages describing the horrors of our world, the primary thing we begin with is the victory of God in Christ. And so Christians proclaim this story, as I try to say in the book, good justice and mercy are natural to this world, because justice and mercy are natural to God. And this is this world belongs to God. And so it's it's a matter of being very sober about the world we live in, but also being sober about our sobriety, in a sense, being sober to know that the stories of harm and destruction are internal to the stories of redemption and reconciliation. I know sometimes in our moments where we're trying to be, as theologians, very serious, and there's a kind of 
vanity in some of this, where we think that the task of academics is to be ever more clever critics, right? As if Freud, Nietzsche, and Marx live forever rent-free in our heads. That there's something right about that, but it can't be, it clearly can't be the case. And even in, say, literary circles and literary theory, people are beginning to realize it. It can't possibly be that humans are nourished simply by bad stories. Humans are nourished by bad stories that have an inflection within a larger story of something like hope about goodness, truth, and beauty. And so the wonderful thing about the Redeemer community is that they are proclaimers. And they're they're proclaimers certainly more with their lives and with their mouths of a victory they don't think they they need to make happen, but a victory that has happened. As I try to say, this is the critical difference between us and Marxists. Marxists, in our sense, are waiting for the revolution to start. Christians are leaning into a revolution that's a few thousand years old. And so one of my favorite stories, and maybe I can end with this, in the book is where I tell the story about one of the, one of the members of the Redeemer community. Uh, she, was, uh, she was a student at Stanford, and she said, at Stanford, you learn two things at once. One, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and two, the world being saved is your responsibility. And she said what that did is it just absolutely paralyzed her. Maybe they, maybe the Stanford people meant you're the best of the best and you're going to change the world. Maybe they meant that as inspiration, but I think her response of kind of being paralyzed, that is probably the more human response. If you look at how bad things can be and are, then to be thought of as a person charged with the responsibility of saving that world, would the paralysis seems like a pretty natural reaction. And so what she says is she like had this episode where she had to drop out of school because she was so overwhelmed by the needs of the world. And she found herself in the Redeemer community. And she describes a process of being washed in the litany and liturgy of their service, of this proclamation. And it inspired her to change her life and uh, hole up in this community and live in, in the Bayview Hunters Point, raise her family there. Right, not because she was there to quote change the world, but because she thought the world had been changed and that these were the terms of the new world. And so I love that story because for every one of us that is, you know, trying to be aware of how challenging our challenges are, this is a story of hope. And so the story at the end of the day about racial capitalism, about failed political economies, is theologically a story about how God will not leave us doomed to these things. Well, Jonathan, it's something, as you say, quite many books have been written that do really well at describing all that's wrong with the world and don't offer much, much grounds for hope. But I I was really surprised and and honestly filled with joy to to find the the honest ways with eyes open. Of course, you ask hard questions, but with, with eyes wide open, still you are offering us hope for a transformed world in light of God's economy and the coming of God's kingdom. So thank you, Jonathan, for the book and for this conversation today. Thanks for having me on. It's a real privilege. is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured theologian Jonathan Tran, biblical scholar Matt Crossman. Production assistance by Macy Bridge, Alexa Rollo, and Tim Berglund. I'm Evan Rosa, and I edit and produce the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu, where you can find past episodes, articles, books, and other educational resources that help people envision and pursue lives worthy of our humanity.
If you're new to the show, remember to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss one of our episodes. And to our loyal supporters and our faithful listeners, we'd be so honored if you would tell a friend about the show or share this episode. Here's just a few ideas. By hitting the share button in your podcast app, you can actually send this episode as a text or an email to a friend, and you can share it in your social feed. You could also give us an honest rating in Apple Podcasts. And finally, you could write a short review of the show in Apple Podcasts. Put it in your own words. This will help like-minded people get an idea about what the show is all about and what's most meaningful to you. Thanks for listening, friends. Thanks for listening, friends.